Will the congregation please open in their Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. We will be finishing chapter 3 today, expounding verses 31 through 35. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. Please join with me in prayer. Dear Lord God, we approach Thee now before the preaching of the Word. The preaching of Thy Holy Word, O Lord, please apply it. Please apply it. Lord Jesus, that we might see thee more lovely in thy works and thy person, thy doctrine more wondrous to behold, believe, cling to, and obey. Lord, that we might love one another all the more because of thy work for us. Lord, we thank thee for all thou hast done. We ask for thy help. O Lord, I pray for these, thy people, that wouldst open their heart, their ears, their eyes, they may behold wondrous things in thy word. Holy Spirit, we ask for thy help. Apply the word to us. Let us stand in awe and reverence before it. Lord, that we might see Jesus. We might see thee, Jesus, as our treasure our chief joy being to glorify Thee. Lord, help this, Thy unprofitable servant, to open Thy Word, to expound it, apply it. Send us not on a fool's errand, O God, but help us to grow. Grant us faith. Grant us obedience. Lord, that we could be called thy children. We know so little, are so ignorant. Yet, O God, thou receivest us. Bring us into thy family, into thy fold, to thy church. Thou art tender and sweet in thy mercies and thy providences to us. God, we need thee now. As always, help us to cling to Christ, to see him more clearly in thy word. I pray these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, the closing of chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold! My mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Dear congregation, as we continue on in our exposition through the Gospel of Mark, let us remember the context once again. Jesus had just officially, in the last scene, officially and publicly broken with the sect of the Pharisees and the scribes. In their opposition to him, he taught that by opposing him and his work and his ministry, that they were actually resisting the Holy Spirit of God, even blaspheming him. His ministry was continuing to grow. Multitudes were continuing to gather together, such vast multitudes as we read last week that they could not even be fed. His teaching was becoming more and more clearly at odds with the religious zeitgeist of his day. 
As we read in verse 21, even some of his friends and allies had now thought that maybe he was beside himself, out of his mind, or crazy. A great multitude of disciples and hearers is still around him. The disciples being closest to him right now, seated about around his feet, and many more standing around that circle. Now, in this scene, his own family, his mother and his brothers come, and they seek to get his attention. They're seeking to get his attention. They're likely here to get Jesus to come with them away, probably to a safe place. Things were getting too hot. The the publicity was starting to spread. Some people have attributed ill motive to his family in this place. I don't necessarily see cause for it. They did not interrupt his teaching. Rather, they, being unable to get close to Jesus because of the great multitude that was surrounding him, simply passed the message along through the crowd until, until those closest to Jesus were able to inform him what they said, kind of like telephone. They couldn't even get to him. We've seen other people interrupt, but here his family does not interrupt. I think from that and following scenes where, though unconverted still, his family still had a high regard for Christ and his ministry, that they still did have, at this point, a high regard. They weren't trying to stop his ministry, per se, but their view was not high enough. They didn't understand exactly what was going on. They thought they could possibly help Jesus' ministry. They could help Jesus. They loved him as a close kinsman, their brother, right, their son. But they had a worldly perspective. Maybe they thought that Jesus was unaware of the fact that his recent interactions with the Pharisees could lead to his death. They were plotting to kill him. Maybe they assumed that Jesus was simply unaware of the negative press he was getting and were trying to take him away so he'd be safe. Whatever the case was, his family desired to take him away from what they thought was a dangerous situation. And thus... They demonstrated that they did have an incorrect understanding of his teaching and his ministry, what he was trying to do here. It is possible that they, even his mother, had forgotten that Jesus needed to be employed, needed to be about his father's business, as he told Mary and his brethren and Joseph in Luke chapter 2. They presumed that he would possibly give more heed to their words, they being his family, his own flesh and blood. But Jesus wisely, as always, uses this opportunity not only to correct their misunderstanding, but also to teach a glorious and central truth of Christianity, that believers and believers alone are in familial relation to Jesus Christ, with God as their own Father. Only Christianity has that to offer. Only Christianity has that as a central and maybe even the central teaching. Reconciliation between man and God. And not just any reconciliation, but being brought back into relation as children with God. Physical descent. Physical descent. So important for the Jews is no longer relevant. Jesus is showing this. What matters is one's spiritual relation to Christ, not one's national relation to Christ. To all those who received Jesus Christ by grace through faith, we read that he gives the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1 12. With that as an introduction framing our discussion, let us read the text once again, and we will look at three points. Verse 31. There came then his brethren and his, mother, and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them, which sat about him, and said, Behold, 
my mother, my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Three points this afternoon. Losing family. Number one, losing family. Number two, gaining family. And number three, adopted in Christ or adoption in Christ. Losing family, gaining family, adoption in Christ. First, losing family, verses 31 and 32. His brethren, his mother, come to where this massive multitude of people is gathered to hear Jesus Christ's teaching. Especially after he had just had that interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes. Even more curiosity is upon his ministry and his work and his teaching. And when they get there, they send for Christ. They send for Jesus to come with them. So although in this passage, Jesus didn't lose his family per se, yet they did doubt and misunderstand him and his ministry. He now felt the pain of being doubted and misunderstood even by his relatives according to the flesh. He's been castigated. He's been hated. He's been rebuked. He's been lied about and attacked by his enemies. And as we saw last week, even by some of those who were friendly to Jesus, some of those who agreed with Jesus on many points, were now beginning to say, he's out of his mind. He's beside himself. But now, he begins to feel the pain of his own family, doubting and misunderstanding him and his ministry. However, we also see the consistency of Christ's life with his own teaching. He understood that even his own mother, even his brethren, according to the flesh, can still disbelieve and disavow him. Notice a few things. As Jesus teaches elsewhere, if we both hear and obey the word of Christ, which is to do the will of God, we may be abandoned, we may be betrayed, or persecuted even by our own families. In this, we must remember what Jesus himself says in Luke 12, 51 through 53. He says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Christ unites Christians. Christians. Christians are united together in their faith in Christ. But he divides believers from non-believers, even if it's amongst the closest of relations. Persecution shall arise from the world against Christians. We know that. Even by some of their own household even by some in their own household. Mark 13, 12, Jesus says, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Our dear Lord, dear congregation, felt the searing pain of betrayal from friends, from enemies, and persecution as well. And all these things even from his own family. Therefore, he can now sympathize with us. With us. He can succor us. He can aid us. He can strengthen us when we endure the same trial. When friends become foes. When family members become foes. When there's division amongst believer and unbeliever. Even sometimes the most emotionally painful. Let us remember that we have the privilege dear congregation, the privilege of coming to our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in order to receive comfort, in order to receive aid in our sufferings. We don't have to bear it on our own. We don't have to grit our teeth, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to do it. No, what that actually looks like for Christians, we go to Christ. We go to Christ. He strengthens us. He comforts us. Because if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, he will in due time exalt us up in strength. Now, 
I can speak to this slightly from my own experience, anecdotal, but still. When I became a Christian at 18, I lost all of my friends. They didn't even know who I was anymore. They didn't understand. They turned against me. They were angry at me. They hated the things I was talking about now. I was a completely different person because I was a new creature in Christ Jesus. My own family turned against me. It became very, very hostile in my home. Very hostile. They no longer knew who I was. They no longer wanted anything to do with me. And in fact, wanted to attack me. But we learn through these times, even through some of those hardest, most painful experiences of our family turning against us even, for our faith, that Christ helps us. That Christ is our strength, our comfort, our aid in those times, and that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, himself having endured persecution, betrayal, and slander. Also let us notice that being persecuted by unbelieving family members should come as no surprise to us. No surprise. Since we know that we shall be hated by all. By all. For Christ's sake. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. For my name's sake. So it comes as no surprise to us. Though it's sometimes shocking and especially painful, it does come as no shock, or it should. This is easily seen in our current social climate. It's not difficult to see the hatred that the world has for Christianity in our current culture. It's been building for a long time. It hates Christians. It stands opposed to what God teaches. It stands opposed to Christianity. Christians are being persecuted. They're being suppressed. They're being oppressed at an alarmingly large scale right now. An alarmingly large scale right now. And history teaches us that if our culture continues in this way, if you study the Reformation, you study church history, this is what happens. That the time is now soon approaching when the government shall begin imprisoning ministers. Vigilantes might be walking around killing Christians or beating Christians in the streets. It's not happening yet. But those seeds of persecution, true persecution, are now beginning to sprout in our country. All the more reason, dear congregation, that we cling to Christ that we seek Christ, we pray for revival, we pray that we would stay strong, we would stay true, we would seek him, we would love him and grow in our faith. Grow in our faith. Let us plead the throne of grace for true revival and live holy in the midst of this evil generation. Now, a brief note on persecution. A brief note on persecution. Many have a romantic idea, a romantic idea of persecution. I, I often have this as well. Many make a false distinction between politics and religion when it comes to Christian persecution specifically, as if they're different. The romantic idea is that possibly government forces or Satanists or something will come into a church, tell everyone to get on the ground, on their knees, tell them they go one by one, deny Jesus Christ as the only sufficient Savior, or I'm going to cut your head off. And the Christians will stand strong, they'll not deny the faith, and they'll get their heads cut off one by one. And then it's over. That's a romantic idea of persecution. That's not how it usually goes, hardly ever. That's pure romanticism. It's rarely the case that Christians are persecuted as a direct result of their faith. A direct result of their faith. Remember, the key part of persecution is slander and misrepresentation. We must remember this when we think about persecution, whether it's from family or friends, coworkers, what have you. Most Christians in modern times and throughout history have been persecuted, beaten, fined, imprisoned, and killed not because of their faith. We must understand this. Not because of their faith, but because they were political anarchists, because they were revolutionaries, they were hate preachers, they were bigots, they were rebel rousers and enemies of the state. That's why Christians are persecuted. Because they are those things. According to their persecutors. Remember, Jesus Christ was crucified. Why was he crucified? For claiming to be the king of the Jews? For being the Christ of Israel? No, Jesus was crucified for being a revolutionary, for being an enemy of the Roman state. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the same. The early Christians under Nero were fed to lions and lit on fire as lamps for the gardens and Nero's courts because they were atheists, because they were cannibals, 
because they were rioting in the streets and lighting fires. That's why they were persecuted. Many of the Reformed were in prison and killed for the same reason. They were in league with the devil. They were trying to overthrow governments. All of these examples were falsely labeled as political crimes. Not for being persecuted because of your strong conviction of Jesus Christ as the propitiation for sin. That's usually how it comes. So when we begin to experience persecution in our life, whether it's from without or from our family or neighbors or coworkers, we have to remember that a lot of these accusations that will come, a lot of these slanders and misrepresentations are the persecution. It's not romanticized. Our unbelieving families will do the same. Many of us have experienced. They may hate us for saying that homosexuality is a sin. They'll call us homophobic. They'll call us hateful. They might say that we are closed-minded bigots and we're hateful for maintaining that Christianity is the only true religion and that people of all other faiths worship demons and false gods and are going to hell because they are not saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're bigots now. We're closed-minded. That's what you'll be hated for, not because of your belief in Christ. Here's the key, though. Let us not retaliate. Let us not retaliate in kind or be taken off by those slanderous misrepresentations. Rather, let us hold fast to the truth as it is in Jesus, just as Jesus did. Remember, before Pilate, he remained silent. We are in good company when we're slandered, misrepresented. We're in the company of Jesus. We're in the company of many, many solid Christians, including the Apostle Paul. Last application on that point is this. When we are persecuted by family or friends or whatever, let us be careful that we are hated for Christ's sake, not our own. Not our own. A lot of these guys you'll see on the street corners yelling and profanities and all sorts of things think that they're being persecuted because people get angry at them. They're not being persecuted for Christ. They're being persecuted for being a jerk. It's a big difference. How difficult it is, it truly is difficult when, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, 36, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. However, we must be sure when something like that happens that they are hating and persecuting us because we confess Jesus before them, as Jesus says earlier in Matthew 10, 32. Not hating us and persecuting us because we have actually wronged them in some way. That's a key. We must love and honor our parents and our families. We must do them no wrong. Not go out of our way to hurt them. Rather, we have to serve them and walk before them in such a way that glorifies our Father, which is in heaven. Matthew five sixteen. This does not mean that we back down from our beliefs. This doesn't mean that we remain silent about our beliefs. But that we treat our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends who are unbelievers as fellow human beings and give them no reason to hate us for our own sin. You can never do that perfectly, but let that be your goal. Give them no cause for offense in ourselves. If they are to be offended, do all that is within you to make sure that they are offended because of Christ, his person, his work, and his doctrine not your poor misrepresentation of him. Second, gaining family. Look at verse 33. And Jesus answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? We can ask the same question as Christians. And we should ask the same question as Christians. As Christians, who is our family? Who is our family? In verse 34, Jesus says, or we read that Jesus looked around about on them which sat about him, and he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. The evangelist Matthew adds that he also extended his hand even, pointing at all those seated in a circle around him. Jesus forgets none of his sheep. He knows exactly who they are. He points them out in a circle as they sit around at his feet, loving them, knowing them by name. Jesus knows who his family is, namely those who hear God's word and accomplish his will, who do it. We too may point out at those seated around us here and say, behold, my mother and my brethren. 
We can do that to all Christians throughout the world right now. All true believers throughout the world. Behold, my mother and my brethren, my family, my spiritual family in Christ. As Christians, we may lose family according to the flesh, but we gain true spiritual family, which is far better. In Mark 10, verses 28 through 31, we read this. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, or behold, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. That's key if you look at the context there. That's often wrongly used by prosperity teachers to say, see, look at all the stuff we'll get. That's not Jesus' point at all. Peter's saying, all right, we've left everything and followed you. Everything. Times are getting hard at that point in Jesus' ministry. But Jesus says, in this life, along with the persecutions, you'll have more than you ever could have imagined as far as houses and lands and mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers. Now, I can testify, as well as can many of you, that we have traveled to many places in the state, throughout the country, throughout the world even, and found bosom brethren united in nothing, maybe not even language, but our belief in Jesus Christ, our salvation found in Jesus Christ. And we've experienced tender love and mutual benefit with them. Brothers and sisters that we could happily spend the rest of our lives with and that we shall spend eternity in the presence of God with. I can think of brethren through most of the states here in this country that I've been to, that I've met with. I can think of the Christians in India where I didn't even speak their language and they didn't speak mine. But we fellowshiped. We communed about Jesus Christ together. Think about Christians in Cyprus that I've met, England that I've met, in this state, and the ones right in front of us. Amazing. We have a family in Christ. We all can say with the Apostle John, as he says in 1 John 1, 3 and 7, Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. When we first became Christians, many of us, possibly... I know myself, thought that we might be losing the only friends and family that we had. I found salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, now I don't even have friends and family left. Now what do I have? But we actually gained an innumerable family in the Lord. Lands, houses, all these things, hundredfold. Because wherever you go, you will find believers. Your bosom brethren, your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers in the Lord who will lead you, who will teach you, who will bring you into their home, show hospitality to you, love you, worship with you. That's the beauty. This also demonstrates for us that Christianity is not according to the flesh, but the spirit. The spirit. We do not know Christ according to the flesh, right? Nor do we know our true spiritual kindred according to the flesh. We are not born into God's family according to the flesh by being Jewish or American, or anything else. But we are born again supernaturally in the regeneration of God's Spirit upon us into God's family. Into God's family. Remember John says again in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus, dear congregation, our spiritual family is not according to the flesh. It's not according to the flesh, our physical lineage or nationality, but through mutual union with Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.11 and Galatians 3.28 say this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Just as we are the true family of Jesus, the ones upon whom he looks and says, Behold, my mother and my brethren, so too we are now one another's true family through our spiritual relation to Jesus Christ. We, along with all other Christians, are one another's true family. True family. That is why we must love one another, dear congregation. Love one another. Bear with one another's faults, one another's burdens. Serve one another. Forgive one another as we have been freely forgiven. For we are all family in Jesus Christ, who hath loved us and given himself for us as a propitiation for our sins, that he might redeem us from our sins, our past life, and bring us back into fellowship with us, or with himself, together in one body, the church. Third and last point. Adoption in Christ. Adoption in Christ. If you look at verses 33 through 34. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Who is Christ's Mother and brother and sister. Some of the reformers, post-reformation divines especially, would say that the church is the mother of Jesus Christ because she puts him before the world. I don't know if I like that language necessarily. However, their point is this, that we are the family of Christ. We are the mother and the brethren of Jesus Christ. All believers are the mother and brother of Jesus Christ. They are freely brought into his family by a but blood-bought right. A blood-bought right because of Jesus Christ. This is called the doctrine of adoption. It's talked about in our confession. We'll look at that in a minute. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, we read these words by the Apostle Paul. According as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So out of our free and sovereign salvation in Christ Jesus flows out our justification before him, our adoption as children of God, our progressive sanctification through this life by the Holy Spirit and faith, and our future glorification. We are made the children of God, dear congregation, through the redemption of Jesus Christ. The redemption of Jesus Christ. We are made children of God through the redemption of Jesus Christ. What love, what love, what comfort, what joy, what glory. What glory. Being chosen before the foundation of the world in God's holy decree, we are made holy and without blame before God in love as his adopted children. As adopted children. This is according to God's will, the apostle says. Not our own. Not our own. No one chooses God, but God, according to his good pleasure and will, hath freely chosen some sinners... To be made his children. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Something we should know about adoption. Adoption. The biblical doctrine of adoption. In this time period, the Romans and the Greeks, here's how adoption worked. Free and wealthy men, prominent men, were wealthy, had the money to do so, would go and find poor, older children. Usually they'd be presented in something kind of like an adoption agency, if you want to think of it like that, an ancient form of that, where they are brought by their parents when they're young teenagers and sometimes young men to be adopted by these families, these rich families, to give them a skill, to give them legal rights, to move them up in society. And then they'd be entitled legally to all the rights 
that the family's true blood children had. So too are we legally made the true children of God and Christ. Romans eight fifteen through 17 says, the Apostle Paul, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we, we may be also glorified together. Quick note, Abba, Father. I love that Paul does this. Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word, so the Jewish people, the Hebrew word for father. Father here, translate, comes from patir in Greek. So he's showing that it's both Greek and Jew. Gentile and Jew are one in Christ. Both have access to call God their father. So according to our confession of faith in chapter 12, they say this about adoption. Our adoption is rooted in our justification through God's only Son, Jesus Christ, which places us in the number of the children of God that we might enjoy all the liberties and the privileges of God's true children. Having God's name, meaning he owns us, he places his ownership on us and says, I own that person as my son or my daughter. Having God's name placed upon us to signify us as his children and he as our father. This adoption then is granting us the Holy Spirit of adoption who enables us to access the throne of grace with boldness and to call God our father, entitling us to the pity, the protection and supply of God, giving us the grace of his chastisement by which we are daily mortified in our sins. It endows upon us the assurance of God's promise to never cast us off as bastards and in this vindication of our being sealed unto the day of redemption and the sign that we shall inherit eternal life as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's a summation of the teaching found in chapter 12 of our Confession of Faith. It's the same in the Savoy and the Westminster as well. Now, in this glorious adoption, dear congregation, we are taken from this, from sinners to saints, from sinners to saints, from rebels against God to his own children, from haters of God to lovers of God, from wicked ones that were liable only to the judgment of God to his own holy children entitled to all the blessings of sonship legally. That's what adoption is for us. That's why Christ can look upon us, those who do God's will, and say, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Adoption is the chief blessing of Christ's salvation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is a very, very important doctrine that goes alongside of adoption. And it deserves much more time than we can give it right now. But it is spoken of all throughout the scriptures and many places. We are united with Christ. What does that mean? We are made part of his body. In fact, partakers of his divine nature, his divinity, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4. How does that work? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, made partakers. We are made new new creations in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and stand legally before God, our Father, as the very perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. In adoption, we are united with Christ, and we are united with each other, with one another. We become, all of us, children of God. All of us, brethren, one to another. A couple of practical applications before we close. How then, as those whom Jesus Christ can look at and say, Behold, my mother and my brethren, can we live as sons of God 
towards God. Sons of God, towards God. In our text, Jesus says, For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Verse 35. So in living out our familial relation to Christ, we have then therefore familial duties toward God. Duties of sonship. Duties as children. We must hear the word of Christ, that is, believe it, and we also must do the will of God. Namely, out of faith in Christ, we walk in accordance with his commandments, which are loving God, loving each other, our brethren. First John. The apostle sums it up this way. The apostle John. After stating this, that Jesus Christ is our righteousness as Christians by grace through faith, He's our advocate before the Father and that he is the propitiation for our sins through his blood, 1 John 2, 2. He then goes on to say this in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Behold, he says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in himself, in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So you see the duties there. You see that adoption, that union, that justification, that forgiveness, and then duty that follows. He begins by drawing our attention to what God has done. If we follow the Heidelberg Catechism, that's what we should always do. We should always do. Look first to what God has done. Behold, he says. Behold. That means stop. Stop. Give attention. Slow down in your reading. Pay attention to what's going on. Whenever you see behold in the scriptures, stop. Start paying attention again. It's important. It's as if he said, behold, what kind, what manner, what alien form of love our Father has freely laid upon us. Namely, that we, 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 dear Christian, should somehow be called the sons of God. Somehow. How? How can it be? We sinners, we rebels, now children in his courts? It would have been just for God to send us to hell. He would have remained loving and merciful and gracious. It would have been grace upon grace, unfathomable, for him to send us to a place far away from him, a kind of eternal purgatory. We could find something to do there. It would have been an unspeakable measure of grace for him to make us angels, like the angels, servants, ministers in his court. But what has he done? He has not done this. Rather, he has made us children at his table. Children at his table. What grace that we can know him only if in part. Only if in part. We have eternity to chase down his glories. And we shall. Therefore, seeing our guilt, seeing our guilt, Experiencing his grace, let us then, then therefore purify ourselves before him in gratitude and love. That's John's point right there. This is the context upon which John founds our duty. Our duty. This is what Jesus means when he says that all who do God's will are his brethren. Our adoption is freely given by God. Let us, therefore, freely give ourselves to him in grateful service and love. Grateful service and love. An illustration. We talked about Roman uh, adoption a minute ago. There was a rich Roman who had a high standing in society. And he went to a place where these children are put forward and presented for adoption. He looked over the teenage boys to find one whom he would choose to make his own. His eyes lighted upon one poor boy, a thatcher's son. He works on the roof. He passed over the rest. He chose this one boy to be his own. He was taken back 
to that vast, expansive villa in which the rich man lived and given all of the legal rights that the man's own blood-born children had. The boy was then taught a trade and lived in grateful love and gratitude with his new family all the days of his life. All the days of his life. The man did this freely, out of grace and love. Now, so too, we as Christians, dear congregation, ought to live in loving gratitude, right? Loving gratitude to our Father, which is in heaven, who freely adopted us as our own. We had no say in the matter. Just grace, grace, grace. Living as sons of God before God. Now living as sons of God towards each other. Towards each other. Our confession states in chapter 27 about the communion of saints, how this is supposed to look. That all believers, they say, are united to Jesus Christ, and thus they're also united to one another in love. So because we are united in Jesus, we are thus united to one another. Believers have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. It's part of their duty. Christians must maintain a holy fellowship and communion together in the public and private worship of God and perform all spiritual services towards one another as tend to their mutual edification. They are also bound to relieve each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. That was the end of paragraph 2. Just took a few quotes from that. So in summation, what they say in chapter 27 is that believers are to live in holy unity and communion with one another as fellow blood-bought recipients of grace. That's wonderful and beautiful. A place where we get to practice crucifying our flesh, our pride. A a place where we get to practice forgiveness, encouragement, love to God and to each other. Last, living as sons of God before the world. Colossians 4, 5 and 6, Paul says this, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without Redeeming the time, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So, heavenly mindedness, a huge theme in Colossians, will cause us to have heavenly words for worldly men. Heavenly words for worldly men. Romans sixteen nineteen, Paul says, For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. So we are to carefully obey God as God's children before the watching world, that the world would have no cause to reproach us for an inconsistent lifestyle. Again, something we can never do perfectly, but that is the goal. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Paul writes this, And that ye study to be quiet, and do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly towards them that were without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. We must be hard workers as Christians, especially if we have unbelieving employers. We honor them by working hard and diligently to be able to serve those in need, whether they be within the church, and first and foremost, because that's what our confession says, or without the church, people who are not Christians in our midst, that we can serve others as a testimony. 1 Peter 2, 12 and 3, 16 say this, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation, having a good conscience that whereas they may speak evil of you as evildoers, remember that misrepresentation, they may be ashamed that falsely accused your good conversation in Christ. I.e., we should live before them that they would be able, live before them in such a way that the only thing they could be able to do is make false accusations about our conduct, not true ones. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. In other words, our holy lifestyle of devotion to God will point people's eyes to God and not ourselves. Philippians 2, 15 and 16, Paul writes, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul had labored over the Philippians, bringing them to Christ, teaching them doctrine, building them up, discipling them. And he's saying, now live holy lives to God before the world, that our holding forth of the word would be more readily accepted. Why will it be more readily uh, readily accepted? Because our lifestyle will match our preaching. Ultimately, we should live before the world with a gospel-centered and evangelistic emphasis. We are soul winners, dear congregation. Soul winners. The last words of Jesus and Mark. Some of the last words. Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Fallible word of God. That we are to be soul winners. Soul winners. Living before the world. Letting our love for God as children, his own children. Bought and purchased by Jesus Christ. Be demonstrated in our love to one another. And our love for the gospel and love for the people of this world that are dying. Our love for revival. Our love for justice and peace that comes through Christ alone. Dear congregation, this is what it is to be Christ's family, his church. Let us be swift to know God in our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Any one of those without the other two is insufficient. Let us In trying to do this, follow the Heidelberg's pattern of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Seeing our guilt, seeing how we've sinned against God, seeing the grace of Jesus Christ in making us his children, forgiving us of our sins, and then out of gratitude living to him, his glory, his honor, out of love and gratitude before a watching world. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, to call Thee Father, what an honor and blessing it is. I thank Thee for these, my brothers, my sisters, that we could be called Thy children. Please bless us. Grant us more unity, more love for Thee that demonstrates itself in love for one another and the lost in this world. Grant us revival. Grant us faith, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.